Okay, so if you didn't know, uh, we're beginning our conference and we're going to use both Sunday school. Uh, we're going to use both uh, Sunday school, combined Sunday school classes this Sunday and next to offer some content that just didn't really fit with the theme of where, where I'm wanting to go with my main lectures this week. Uh, when I begin my opening talk on Thursday night, I'm going to lay down kind of some ground rules for the conference. And essentially the rule is that we're not here to fight. Uh, I know everyone is fighting over the issue of human sexuality and gender, but is there a way to come at this discussion that doesn't play by the rules of uh, societal debate? That's what I'm going to attempt to do this week. That being said, there is one uh, debate in particular that I do think is important to address, uh, but I didn't want it to be a distraction from the main content of the conference. Uh, so I, I'm chosen this Sunday school class to address it. And if you, this, what I'm going to say here, you might find really interesting or I'm, I'm, I might bore you. Um, if I bore you, just know this is not what the conference is going to be like, okay? Because <laughs> um, I'm going to get into some technicalities and whatnot. But the reason why I think this debate is one that needs to be addressed at our conference in particular is because it's an in-house debate within our Christian tradition itself. Um, if you are a member of TCPC or... I know some people here aren't, or if you would uh, be coming to a conference that TCPC is hosting, chances are you hold to a historic uh, biblical sexual ethic. But within those who hold to that ethic, there is an important uh, disagreement that actually speaks to the uh, fundamental tenet of the sexual revolution. And you may not know this, but our denomination, if you're not familiar, our denomination is the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, has become, it's kind of become the ground zero of that debate. And the debate comes down to the Christian response to four obvious realities that we are facing. Let me just state those really plainly. You're going to say, well, those are obvious, but I'll, I'll share why, why I'm saying it. So there's four things that have kind of forced this debate to come to surface. Number one, gay people exist. You say, well, duh. But here's, here's why I state that obvious point so matter-of-factly. When I say that gay people exist, I don't mean in movies. I don't mean on social media. I don't mean in San Francisco. I mean everywhere, statistically speaking, in this room. There's a time when these friends existed only in anonymity. Um, living a painful, lonely life of self-hatred. Those days are no more. Every single one of you knows someone who is openly gay. That's always been true, but now we are being confronted with that truth, and that is a good thing. I'd rather have the discussion than pretend it's not there. Number two, they do not choose to be gay. If you still hold to the outdated trope that homosexuality is a choice, you need to know that you are wrong in that. I have pastored countless friends with unwanted sexual desires, and every single one of them said they did not choose this for themselves, quite the opposite. It would be the last choice they would have made for their life. Now, I grant the social contagion 
phenomenon going on in our society where identifying as LGBTQ can give you instant social capital. It's cool to come out. I understand that. And there is the added bonus of hurting parents that teens may be rebelling against. That plays into it as well. So understand that is part of the discussion, but that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about those for whom homosexuality, gender confusion, these real struggles are a true part of a story they did not choose for themselves. Three, change is nearly impossible. This one needs to be a whole lot of nuance that I'm going to provide in a moment. And if that's controversial to you, I'm going to speak to you in just, just a moment. But when I, when I say change is nearly impossible, what I'm saying is that we have very little evidence that it is possible for someone who is exclusively attracted to the same sex to then exclusively become attracted to the opposite sex. Studies have shown that doesn't happen. Fourth, some of these friends truly do love Jesus and want to follow him. Christians, as much as you are a Christian. So, gay people exist, they choose to be gay, change is nearly impossible, and some love Jesus and want to follow him. How, conservative evangelicals, are you going to respond to those four realities? Well, not well. Um, it's been a horrible 50-year response, and uh, many gay friends have suffered because of it. Nobody has been harmed more by the self-righteous sexuality of Christianity that I talked about in my sermon, or if you weren't there, you'd hear about in the next service this morning. Nobody's been harmed by that more than the gay community. But we're trying to figure it out. We are trying to do better. The easiest and uh, uncontroversial response would be to just rewrite our ethic and do away with the tension. And obviously many churches have chosen to do that. But what about those of us who are unwilling to do that? What are we who hold to a biblical historic uh, sexual ethic going to do about the obvious reality that gay people exist? They did not choose to be gay. Change is nearly impossible. And some want to follow Jesus. That's what's being debated among evangelicals right now. And the PCA in particular is having that debate. And so I thought it was important, um, leadership thought it was important, not just me, um, as members of a, of a PCA church and a PCA conference that's hosting this, I think it's important for you to understand the details of that discussion and why there is disagreement. Um, so that's what we do here. Let's, let's start with the sexual revolution. What the sexual uh, liberation over the past half century has done is, is unlocked the closet of homosexuality. That's not to say that everyone who is gay uh, has chosen to come out of the closet, but the closet is now unlocked and they are able to come out if they so choose. And that, I believe, is a good thing. Next Sunday, uh, Macklin and I are going to be, um, Macklin's our, our African partner, um, and we're going we're gonna to have a conversation and get his outside perspective. One of the things he told me, I don't know if you remember telling me this, is, is he said, you know, one of the benefits that you all do have, I know, I know you are freaking out about cultural developments, but at least you're able to have the conversation in your culture. My culture, you're not allowed to talk about it. You have to hide that. Nobody's allowed to come out, so to speak. And so at least in your culture, you are able to minister to these friends. You're able to have this conversation and, um, and that's, a good, that's a good thing. We don't, are not asking anybody to pretend it's not there. But 
Now every church is trying to engage this world and have to deal with it, again, confronting us with those four things. Well, the church's first response was to contest the first three. Perhaps you've heard of conversion therapy before. It's getting a lot of attention in state legislations across our country, even in ours. Conversion therapy was built on the false premise that gay people don't really exist, at least not from birth, because it really is a choice and you really can change it. And based on those assumptions, the uh, church traumatized an entire generation of same-sex attracted youth. It was, it was abusive. Homosexual detox is essentially what conversion therapy was. Uh, reactively, the way it worked was erotic uh, feelings for the same sex were punished with negative consequences, some as severe as electric uh, shock therapy or nausea-inducing drugs. And then proactively, uh, they went through what amounts to heterosexual boot camp, essentially. Perhaps participants were forced to into behavioral modification uh, to just act like stereotypical heterosexuals, the idea being that heterosexuality should be faked and forced until it yields conversion. It was so awful and traumatic, and of course it did not work. All the ex-gay uh, ministries that implored conversion therapy like uh, Exodus International and so forth have shut down, admitted their programs were pseudo pseudoscience failures and have apologized. Now, that being said, uh, before I move on from conversion therapy, I do want to pause here um, and discuss the concept of change. Um, hey, Deacons, before the next service, this thing is rolling on me and it almost fell off of the first service. <laughs> if we could fix that for the next one, it'd be great. Um, I do want to talk about uh, the concept of change when it comes to sexual attraction, because I know that is very important discussion for many that are wondering about it. Conversion therapy was a disaster that didn't work. Does that therefore mean change is impossible? Well, that depends on your uh, definition of change. I already said that going from an exclusive attraction to the same sex to an exclusive attraction to the opposite sex, statistically speaking, is nearly impossible. But that doesn't mean that change in sexual attraction is impossible. I'll illustrate it like this. The medical community uh, does not speak of, can of curing cancer. Instead, they speak about treating cancer. And they don't speak of healing as being cured, but as being what? In remission, maybe full remission. And this is a helpful way to understand same-sex attraction. By the way, to, to, to my... Uh, to my same-sex attracted friends, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm not calling your sexuality a disease any more than I would call my broken sexuality a disease. Don't, don't push my illustration in ways I don't intend. The problem with conversion therapy is that it, it postured itself as a cure to homosexuality. And this was rooted in a simplistic understanding of sexuality. A simple cause behind same-sex attraction, and likewise simple cure to same-sex attraction. But ironically, those who claim sexuality cannot be changed at all have the same problem of simplicity on the other end, the simplistic assumption that sexuality is simply a fixed reality you are born with and any change is impossible. That too is untrue. The reality is that human sexuality is very complex, formed by a complexity of contributing factors. I said no one chose to be gay. I'm not therefore implying that there's a gay biological gene that you're born with. 
What I'm saying is that nurture, nature, all of these things come together in the formative years of our children such that um, when they come of age, they don't ever remember having attraction for anyone but the same sex. This is the nature of sexuality. It is not like the color of your skin, a fixed biological reality. The simplicity of a fixed sexuality recklessly disregards the myriad examples we have of a sexual attraction actually changing. What's interesting is that people seem to recognize that when it comes to heterosexual desires evolving and changing. It is fairly, very common, especially in our day of ubiquitous pornography usage, for people's attractions to change dramatically. I have counseled people who through pornography um, addiction formed newfound attractions. Uh, yes, for the same sex, but also for things that everyone, nearly everyone in our culture would agree are not healthy sexual attractions, degrading sexual acts of violence, rape, necrophilia, pedophilia, and so forth. So don't think anybody would argue that pornography exposure takes sexuality to places uh, people never intended or wanted it to go. But this is the nature of sexuality. It is impressionable and susceptible to change. But what's interesting is that though people recognize this, they deny the ability of sexuality to change in the other direction. That is to say, we recognize the deformation of sexuality, but we deny any hope of reformation, of reformation. But both are in fact possible. I know people uh, with homosexual desires for as long as they can remember, who through uh, not conversion therapy, but skilled therapy, holy habits, healthy community, and so forth, would testify to growth and sexual attraction for the opposite sex, some living very fulfilled sexual lives in marriage. Granted, they would not say that they have gone from exclusive homosexual attraction to exclusive heterosexual attraction, but they absolutely would say they have profound sexual attraction for their spouse. That is to say, they wouldn't say they're cured, but that their sexuality is in remission, so to speak. Uh, Jim Pachta is, I'm not telling a story, he, he, he speaks openly about this. He's an elder in the PCA who publicly admits that he never uh, remembers a day without same-sex attraction, and yet he is uh, married to his wife, uh, Linda, uh, with a slew of kids and grandkids. He speaks openly about his happiness and fulfillment in marriage. And people don't know what to do uh, with Jim's story. Does that mean you're no longer homosexual? Are you heterosexual? What are you? And Jim always answers that question by saying, I'm Linda-sexual. And, 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 and this, is, this is the nature. This is the nature of change I'm speaking of. So I need to move on, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, people living with unwanted sexual desires can discover measures of change, if you want to call it that. All right, back to the main point, though, here. Christianity's first reaction to gay liberation was conversion therapy, an unmitigated disaster. And so uh, the church has gone through a reevaluation of sorts on this issue over the past uh, couple decades. And to make a very long story very short, what has emerged is essentially two different views on this. They're referred to as side A and side B. Will, you can go ahead and bring that up. Um, side A and side B identify as gay and Christian. 
but they have two different views on the implications of their Christianity on their homosexuality. Side A wants to be Christians, but have changed historical Christian teachings to include gay marriage. Homosexuality is not sinful in itself, but there's ethical boundaries, just like there are boundaries to heterosexuality. So homosexual sex, like heterosexual sex, is not sinful in a monogamous marriage, so dating and marriage are permissible according to side A. Side B represents the, um, the gay Christian community that still holds to Christianity's historic ethic and teaching on this and believes that homosexual sex, unlike heterosexual sex, is always sinful. Therefore, dating and marriage, at least to the same sex, is impermissible. Now, within evangelicalism at large, but more specifically, um, within the PCA, there is no discussion on um, the side A perspective. The controversy surrounds side B. You can go down the Google rabbit hole if you'd like. You might say, where's the controversy? That sounds like the biblical historical perspective. Well, it has less to do with homosexual acts or even desires and everything to do with homosexual identity. Many side B Christians say that homosexual acts and desires are sinful, but are very comfortable with identifying as a gay Christian. And that might, not, that might seem like a very small thing to you, but the issue of identity, as we're going to see a lot this week, is massively important. And it's playing out in the PCA um, as we speak, more than any other denomination in our country. There's a minister in St. Louis named Greg Johnson, a brother I love and respect very much. Um, I, and I'm not, I'm not speaking in a way he would not speak. He's very, you can, you can Google him. He's very open and honest about everything I'm about to say. The thing about Greg is that nobody really knows how to process Greg's story. Let me read directly from his Wikipedia page. Greg Johnson is one of the first celibate, publicly gay identified pastors of a non-affirming conservative evangelical denomination. Talk about an anomaly there, right? A celibate, publicly gay identified pastor as a non of a non-affirming conservative evangelical denomination. You don't hear that every day. Well, that non-affirming conservative evangelical denomination happens to be the PCA. Greg is a PCA pastor, and he's very open and public about his sexual orientation and says that outside of a miracle, he does not expect that to change. And the controversy over Greg intensified when his church, Memorial Presbyterian, hosted a conference called Revoice. Revoice is a ministry for side B uh, Christian community. Their mission states, Revoice exists to support and encourage Christians who are sexual minorities so they can flourish in historic Christian traditions. So the idea is a ministry uh, for these side B brothers and sisters, often exiled by both the world and the church. And Revoice Conference is a, uh, what they call a safe place for them to gather for fellowship and mutual encouragement in a struggle that only they can relate to. Now, the criticism of Revoice, and in many ways I think it's a fair criticism, is that um, it's not just that they're comfortable with a gay identity, but also other LGBTQ buzzwords. Also, what critics have argued is a celebration of LGBTQ culture. And so Memorial Prez, Greg's church, hosted a Revoice conference, and this only amped up the controversy in the PCA. We have, uh, we have a minister who is publicly identifying himself this way, where we have PCA churches hosting Revoice conferences. 
And all this came to a head at the PCA General Assembly in 2019. General Assembly in our world is our annual gathering where all the ministers and elected elders come to gather. So 2019, um, this all came to a head. Here's the context. In response to the rapidly evolving views on sexuality in our culture, along with debates it has created within the church, evangelical leaders from a myriad of traditions came together in Nashville to write a contemporary statement on human sexuality that they hoped would be a definitive statement on what evangelical Christians believe in this hour. It's called the Nashville Statement. You can, you can find it online and even sign it if you'd like. The Nashville Statement is fine. I personally believe that uh, what the PCA ended up writing is much better. We'll get to that in a moment. But the Nashville Statement has one controversial part to it. Let me bring that up on the screen and read it. It's Article 7. We affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. We deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. It's that language of self-conception that is speaking to the issue of identity. Is it wrong to self-conceive, to self-identify with something other than our identity as image bearers of God in Christ Jesus. And in particular, what, what if that identity is something that Scripture views as contrary to God's will? In other words, it's not sinful to be an American, but some would argue we should not identify even as American Christians, uh, attaching our, 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 our Christianity to a nation. Well, if we're not comfortable with that, what do we think of gay Christians? Well, at the PCA General Assembly in 2019, a motion was brought to the floor of the assembly to affirm this Nashville statement. And the debate over that motion brought the debate within our denomination, and I would argue within greater evangelicalism, to the forefront. Here's what I think would be helpful uh, for you. I'm going to play two clips from that debate of General Assembly. And now you're going to have to ignore General Assembly procedural jargon. We're really weird in the PCA. Ignore that stuff. Um, and what I thought would be helpful is to, is to let, let you hear two speeches from the floor. One is from Greg himself. And you will get his perspective on this. And then right after Greg, a uh, guy you, you, you may have heard or read some of the stuff, Kevin DeYoung, spoke after Greg. And they both kind of represent each side of the debate. Do we ha are we able to do that? Okay, let's, let's start with Greg's, Greg's speech. Uh, fathers and brothers, um, teaching elder Greg Johnson from Missouri Presbytery. Um, I was not raised in a church or synagogue. I was raised by an atheist father in an atheist home, and I shared that atheism. And I was his gay son. I knew I was gay at age 11. Uh, I was in a Baptist fellowship hall at a cousin's wedding when I realized this was in the summer of 1984 that I could not take my eyes off of one of the groomsmen. And I remember feeling a massive weight of shame. And then when I noticed that everybody was staring at me, I felt fear. It was that same day at that same wedding that somebody explained that 
the groomsmen had a brother that the family had disowned because he was gay and they were Christians and they could not tolerate somebody that disgusting. And that was the day I realized that Christians hate gay people. By God's grace, he pursued me. And in college, I became a Christian and trusted Jesus. I was baptized in a PCA church at age 20 and the next uh, year enrolled at Covenant Seminary, not because I had any interest in going into ministry, that took another decade, but because I wanted to catch up and make up for lost time. And I had read every single book that R.C. Sproul had written and purchased all of his VHS audio tapes and memorized them all. And I was still hungry. Um, at this point, I'm 46 years old and uh, still same-sex attracted. My orientation is not changed, and for those who are exclusively same-sex attracted, who are men, we don't know for certain of even, I've, I have, I've talked to every head of every ministry and can't find a single instance of same-sex attraction going away. And so where that leaves me at age 46 is I'm a 46-year-old virgin who has never so much as held hands. I've never had a romantic embrace. I have never hugged romantically. Uh, I have had a history of struggle with pornography, of which I am now 15 years sober. Uh, I am mortifying my flesh every single day, and yet that has a cost. Jesus has washed me, and yet I'm in the fight for my life every single day, and I don't regret that one bit. But the cost is this. The cost is that there are no family photographs on my mantle because I have no family. The cost is I know what it's like to sit alone at home in my apartment on Christmas Day because I have no family. The cost is that someday I will have to be buried, not cremated, because there will be no one to receive my ashes because my line ends with me. And I don't regret that. I accept that as a calling to suffer for the sake of Jesus, who says that those who give up fathers and mothers and husbands, wives and children and brothers and sisters for my sake will receive a hundred times more. And I love Jesus and I want to serve him and I'm willing to suffer for him because it's that beautiful. And yet, friends, when I read Article 7 of the Nashville Statement, it hurts because Article 7 says that it is a sin to adopt a homosexual self-conception. And we don't do that for any other people group. We don't tell alcoholics it's a sin to conceive of yourself as an alcoholic because drunkenness is a sin. It's the beginning of learning to manage your alcoholism and obedience to Christ so it doesn't define you. We don't tell paraplegics that they should conceive of themselves as able-bodied because that's God's ideal. Uh, we wouldn't tell an infertile woman that she needs to conceive of herself as fertile and she's unbelieving to conceive of herself as infertile because that's not God's design. Friends, I'm fallen, I'm broken, and Jesus has washed me and saved me. And my prayer is that you would consider the damage that will be done to people like me when Article 7 says that it's a sin to acknowledge our brokenness and our shame and the suffering and sorrow that goes with that. My prayer is that we will instead do the hard work of coming up with something biblically nuanced, theologically sophisticated, missionally sensitive, and pastorally sensitive so that people like me don't have to go through all of the suffering I had because their pastors will be well equipped to love 
people who are broken and same-sex attracted and awaiting for glory. Thank you, brothers. Microphone number three, for what purpose do you rise? Gentlemen, order, please. Kevin DeYoung, Teaching Elder, Central Carolina Presbytery. I raise to speak in favor of the committee's recommendation. May I proceed? Yes, sir. I'm relatively new to the PCA, and I love the PCA. I'm very glad to be here. We have issues like any church body, and I would gladly take the issues we have compared to the issues that we were facing in the denomination I came from. I'm very thankful for the denomination I came from. I met the Lord Jesus there, and I know many good pastors and churches. One of the difficulties, however, is that inevitably, as we try to talk about issues of human sexuality, we ended up talking about many other related issues that did not get to the heart of the theological question. We ended up talking about mission, unity, and indeed personal pain, all of which matter. And yet, as we have already heard, one of the purposes of the assembly is to declare, to speak, to make theological pronouncements. One of the difficulties is that we have two narratives that do not have to be mutually exclusive. For some people, this whole discussion is a story of sexual struggle and personal pain. And indeed it is. We don't want to deny that. And for others, this entire discussion is a story of sexual revolution and potential ecclesiastical compromise. That's also a story. And to speak to one is not a refutation of the other. It is possible to speak in a way that is clear and theological and robust without denying that there are very personal stories and issues that we all want to deal with graciously and winsomely. So my simple urging is that you consider is this statement before us true, helpful, winsome, and wise? No doubt some of you do not think that it is, and then you can vote your conscience. But if it is, let us not be afraid to vote for it as such, because we think there is something else to say. This is not an extreme statement. D.A. Carson, John Piper, Russell Moore, John Frame, Michael Horton, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg. These are not extreme men. Sam Albury, Vaughn Roberts, Jackie Hill Perry, Rosaria Butterfield. All of these men and women have publicly identified as persons who struggle with same-sex attraction. And they were signers to the Nashville Statement. I urge this assembly to vote in favor of the committee's report if indeed you find this to be a faithful statement of biblical truth 
as I do. Thank you. I think, I think both of those speeches, the reason I want to show them is because I think both those speeches will help you kind of understand where people are coming from on this side. And, 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 and both those brothers love each other very much. It's, it's very hard to debate these things. Um, but eventually the Nashville statement that we were debating did pass, but a compromise was proposed that sought to unite uh, the entire denomination on the issue. We commissioned a study committee to write our own position paper on human sexuality. Now, the PCA has its problems and its limitations, but in my humble opinion, we have the best thinkers in evangelicalism. And one thing we can do is study, think, and write. And so we formed a group to do just that and wisely put uh, two leaders that represent the two sides of the divide on the committee, Tim Keller and uh, who you just heard from, Kevin DeYoung. Tim and Kevin would both say that's unfair to label their voices as competing voices, but in many ways, uh, their perspectives do seem to represent the competing perspectives. And the idea was that if a statement could be drafted that both Keller and DeYoung agreed upon, then that would be something we could unite around. And that's exactly what happened. I really do encourage you, this week would be a good week to do it. Um, if, if you're a part of our church, I, I would love for you to take the time to read the position paper. Um, just Google PCA report on human sexuality and you can find it. And also you can YouTube uh, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung, uh, human sexuality and watch their YouTube discussion on that report that they wrote together. I truly believe what the PCA came up with was, is the best statement out there on human sexuality. It was adopted by the General Assembly with overwhelming support. Nearly everyone agreed that we could unite behind it. And to me, that should have been the end of the discussion. But unfortunately, we come to the weakness of the PCA, never underestimate our ability to argue. For some, for some, though we affirmed the Nashville statement, though we wrote and adopted our own position paper, that was not enough. Every minister in the PCA is a conservative, okay? But there are a small but very vocal minority that are to the right of Attila the Hun. And they do not believe, they do not believe um, a minister like Greg Johnson should be a minister in our denomination. Charges were brought against him. He was examined by the church courts, declared um, clear to those charges. And so what they turned to uh, was overtures. Overture in the PCA is just legislation, okay? Any church can draft an overture. We could do it if we wanted to. And if approved by the church's presbytery, the next court level in the PCA, it gets brought to the entire denomination. And if it uh, passes General Assembly, the General Assembly debates and votes on it. And if an overture passes, it becomes law in the PCA. Well, at last year's General Assembly, uh, several overtures were brought, all with the same intent. Essentially, it comes back to the notion of identity. Anyone who professes a gay identity, even if they are celibate, committed to holiness, abstaining from homosexual activity, and so forth, but if they profess that identity, they are not eligible to be a minister in the PCA. Okay, follow me. Before an overture gets to the floor of the General Assembly for debate, it first comes to what's called an overture committee. The overture committee is a much smaller group of elected 
uh, ministers and elders who first get to debate the overtures, amend them if they want, vote on them, and if the vote passes the overture committee, it gets to come to the whole assembly. Got it? Well, your pastor had the pleasure of getting elected to the committee last year, yay for me. So I was in the room for this, and there was a charitable but very strong debate over the issue and these overtures. We were very divided. For two days we debated, and in the end, the most the more conservative perspective narrowly won that debate and the overtures passed. But, and I think this was beautiful, um, after we concluded, the most conservative voice on the committee and the most progressive, there's no progressive in the PCA, but the most progressive voice in that committee went out to dinner. And over dinner, they both agreed that this really could divide the denomination. And so they wanted to come up with amended overtures that everyone on the committee could agree with. And they called us all back in um, that evening. We worked to the midnight hour to come up with something that was more unifying. And essentially, we came up with two overtures. Let me bring those up on the screen. For sake of time, I re won't read them all. Let me read the first one. So this is what is actually before the PCA right now. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like manner in their character. Those who profess an identity such as, but not limited to, that was inserted in, um, but not limited to gay Christian, same-sex attraction Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that undermine or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either one, by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, again, such as, but not limited to, same-sex attraction, or two, by denying the reality of hope of progressive sanctification, that's getting at, by denying that uh, change is not possible, or three, by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained office. The second one I won't, I won't read in detail, but essentially it says that candidates uh, for ministry should be examined with particular attention. Well, let me just read the first part there. In the examination of the candidate's personal character, the presbytery shall give specific attention to potential and notorious concerns such as, but not limited to, relational sin, sexual immorality, including homosexuality. And then this is where you see the compromise come in. There are people in the room saying, hey, if we're going to single this out, let's talk about the other issues in the PCA. Child sexual abuse, fornication, pornography, Addictions, abusive behavior, racism. Somebody, somebody got up and said, listen, the historics, our, our denomination in many ways was founded with racial um, tension. We got to throw that in there. We're going to throw this in there and financial mismanagement. We got greedy ministers everywhere. That should be in there. So you see what they're kind of trying to do here. So these two overtures passed the General Assembly, but that does not make them law. Okay. Much like amending the U.S. Constitution, those overtures now have to go back to the states, the presbyteries. And if two-thirds of the presbyteries vote in favor, then they become law. That has been taking place this year, and just found out yesterday, um, the final presbytery met and voted and, and voted them down. So they officially have uh, been voted down, and, and they did not pass the denomination. So these two overtures um, are not going to be a part of our Constitution, but the debate is, I don't think it's going to go away. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up here. I know I'm short on time. Whether that's good or a bad thing in your mind, whether those overtures should have passed or not, we can agree, disagree. I think it, what might help us, though, is for me to share how I voted and why I voted that way, and in so doing, maybe help you understand my perspective on this. Although I was on the overture committee that came up with the overtures, <laughs> I ended up voting against both of them at our presbytery meeting a couple weeks ago. 
what I came to realize was that in the committee, I was so happy, and there's a lot of people like me in this, was so happy that we had just come to something that both sides could agree upon that we were all for it. But after reflection and dialoguing with some people that this will impact prayer, I became convinced they were unhelpful. Let me close briefly by sharing why, and I think that will help you understand my perspective on this debate within um, our denomination evangelicalism. Again, you may disagree with me here. That, that really is fine. These are areas where we can disagree with. Um, I, I voted against it for three, way, for three reasons, and they're in order of importance. One, I'm not in favor of overtures that are veiled witch hunts against brothers in Christ. Um, the elephant in the room that everybody knows is there is that this is about Greg. This is about Greg Johnson and others like him. But we have processes of discipline in place for a reason. Greg was brought up on charges. He was examined. He was cleared. I do not like the idea that if we disagree with the decision of the church courts, we're going to override it by legislation. Two, the PCA could not be clear where we stand on this issue. Um, one could argue we have spoken on this issue more than any other issue, culturally speaking. Our confessions make it very clear. We've made statements. We've affirmed statements. In 1993, our denomination wrote a letter to the president telling him where we, what we believe on this. Bush Sr. never got back to us on that. But we affirmed the Nashville statement. We wrote our own position paper on it. We could not be clearer. The PCA holds to a historical biblical sexual ethic. At some point, our fixation on this issue must force us to examine what I talked about in my sermon. Maybe secular sexuality isn't the issue. Maybe it's our own self-righteous sexuality. Third, I do have concern. I really do. And we're going to talk about that this week. I have concern with the identity stuff. Carl Truman has demonstrated that behind everything that is transpiring in our culture is how we conceive of our own identity. Um, again, more on that this week. And yes, I do wish my side B brothers and sisters would, would, would be more careful with their language and a willingness to adopt secular categories. And, and I have concerns with some of the stuff that takes place at Reefoist. But if I had to choose between my concern over identity ideology and the marginalization of those who struggle with same-sex attraction, I am far more concerned about the latter. Greg Johnson and others like him need our love more than anyone else right now. These friends struggling with same-sex attraction, holding to a biblical ethic, walking the cruciform path of celibacy, nobody is more maligned in our culture than them. Nobody. On one side, the LGBTQ community hates them. They get so much scorn from the gay community because they represent a unique protest to their agenda. The only thing worse than a non-affirming Christian is a gay non-affirming Christian to them. But then on the church side, these friends get charges brought up against them. They have entire overtures directed at them. They get slandered in blogs and social media. These poor souls trying to be faithful to Jesus are just caught in the middle, ruthlessly receiving venom from both sides. And so for that reason, I view them in some ways as heroes of this cultural moment. Far from a liability, they are an asset to the PCA and evangelicalism. What a witness to the watching world on this issue and what an important perspective to evangelicalism. Consider this. This may hit home for some of you. You have a gay child, grandchild, someone you love. In the past, they have two options. One, indulge their orientation and embrace the lifestyle. 
Two, hide their orientation and live their entire life never being honest so as to, make not, so as to not make Christians feel uncomfortable. Wouldn't you like for them to know there is another way forward here? Wouldn't you like for them to be pastored by someone like Greg, someone who knows what it's like to carry this cross in Jesus' name and can help them do that in some way? Maybe you see it differently, that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But I think evangelicalism needs brothers and sisters who are open about their same-sex attraction and still openly proclaim to the watching world Jesus is still worth it. Okay. That was a lot, I understand, but it's a lot of stuff I didn't want to have to address in the conference. I hope that informs and equips you. You can take that how you want. We're not going to fight about it, but I wanted you to be informed and equipped to walk through it. Let me pray and we'll jump into worship. Lord, thank you for this, and I pray that you would continue to unite your church in your name. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling in their sexuality. Would you comfort them, and may our church be an oasis of comfort to them. In Jesus' name, amen.